Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. I am excited to tell you about their ongoing partnership with Refuge, the leading charity helping women and their children experiencing domestic abuse in the UK. Last year, the brand raised an amazing over £75,000 for Refuge and have just released their second Alighieri X-Refuge modern heirloom with 100% of profits being donated to the charity. The unfolding seed necklace is the second in the anthology of pieces alongside the Glimmer of Light necklace designed to mark the 50th anniversary of Refuge's first safe house in 1971. Whilst the Glimmer of Light marks the opening of the first refuge, the unfolding seeds represents Refuge's amazing journey. The textured surface with intricate crevices and layers symbolises the difficulty of this path, whilst the delicate shape of the seed celebrates the beginning of change and new chapters. Listening to people's stories is at the very heart of Alighieri Jewellery, celebrating our unique vulnerabilities, building each other's confidence and forging bonds through the universal language of jewellery. Follow the tale on the at Alighieri underscore jewellery Instagram. And just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I couldn't be more excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most exciting and greatest artists working right now, the brilliant Leila Barbierie. Working across painting, sculpture, to assemblage, on paper, ceramics, wood and more, using carving, burnishing, weaving and wielding, since graduating around 10 years ago, Barbierie has become one of the most acclaimed and forward-thinking sculptors of this generation. Hailed for her experimental processes, Barbierie is also renowned for her vital addressing of narratives surrounding identity, sexuality and human rights, and her frequent use of traditional West African masks as a way of exploring queer identities. Born in Kampala, Uganda, and now working in Brooklyn, New York City, Barbierie studied art at Makarere University in Kampala, where she was exposed to some formative teaching by some formidable female sculptors. However, in the wake of Uganda's 2013 anti-homosexuality bill, Barbirio went to New York City, where she participated in the acclaimed Fire Island Artist Residency. In 2018, she was granted asylum in the US and has since risen to prominence with two major solo exhibitions in New York City at Gordon Robbie Show. Barbirio's work is like nothing I've seen before. 
Both mighty and intimate, heroic and fragile, whether it be her paintings, ceramics or sculptures, they never fail to blow me away. Often using wood or ceramics as a base, she then embellishes them with discarded objects collected from the streets and what results are towering, powerful, glittering, regal-like figures who unite in the form of imagined queer clans. But... The reason why we are speaking with Layla today is because she is the subject of genuinely one of the most incredible exhibitions I've ever seen. At London's brilliant Stephen Friedman Gallery, titled Kuchu Clans of Baganda II, the exhibition is filled with her stunning ceramics, sculptures and paintings and is pushing forth what we know and think of art to be today. Layla Barbierier, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm well, Katie. So, wow, I mean, I know you sadly haven't been able to get to the exhibition, but we here in London are so incredibly lucky to have this show on right now. When I entered the space a few days ago, I would just became transfixed by your work, which ranges from miniature to colossal. Not only is it unlike anything I've ever seen before, but it just has this incredible power and atmosphere that exudes across the gallery space. You kind of feel like you're in some kind of chapel. They are not imposing. They have this quiet power and appear to be both peaceful and protective, which is how I saw it. So I just love to start off by asking you, how do you want people to feel when they are confronted with your work? Thank you. That's a beautiful uh, description of the show that is up in London. It's making me even feel like I've had a, an energy drink right now. <laughs> the way, <laughs> I'm still hoping because I would like to see how it's actually arranged and yeah. feel what everybody's feeling right now. When I'm with them in my studio, of course, they're all together. We kind of, They kind of talk to each other in there and we talk to each other. But I also feel like how I wish I would be able to get to London. But because of the system, the, the American system, it's, it's quite crazy. I'm an artist, I'm an activist, but there's a lot of things out there that need to be talked about. And it's only our voices that these things can be uh, actually amended. I'm envious in a very good way that you guys have been able to see this show and are enjoying it. And that is very good. <laughs> we are. <laughs> I know everybody's like, I'm having a lot of messages. I'm, I'm feeling, okay, envious in a good way. Yes. Because I know you guys have really enjoyed the show. This is how I'd like people feel about my work. I want everybody to get a piece of connection. I have a friend from Uganda, Samali Chienji. And when she got into the space, she told me I was crying. And she literally had to find her clan. And thank God, her clan is one of the big works. This is how I want people to feel. More especially people from Uganda or people who are connected to a certain clan. I want them to associate my work with a certain clan from where they come from. Where I come from, it's basically the animals, the plants, the, the soil, the mountains, but there are other people in London, they have the kites. So you can just think of anything you feel like you want to connect to those works as long as it's a beautiful historical connection. It is. And, and I, I mentioned in the introduction, you know, this idea of this protectiveness. You feel very kind of protected by them when you're in the space and you're surrounded by them. And even though some of them are ginormous and then others are sort of you can almost hold in your hand. I mean, I'm just so fascinated by this idea that you work on such a vast spectrum because I love the fact that, you know, obviously I didn't touch them. <laughs> But they are so tactile. You can either hold them in the palm of your hand or you can walk around them or other times they are just these towering monuments. And 
yeah, despite their scale, they never seem too much and your presence is always there. What is it about working on such a range of scales that you are interested in? Basically, because I always work with space. When I came here, I literally came with nothing. Yeah. I'm not a trained painter, but the only way to survive as an artist who was staying in somebody's couch is just go to the store, just buy paint and an F4-size book that I would just hold in the kitchen when she's away. So that is how literally I've started working with space. And then the next opportunity I have is from Sam Gordon and Jacob Robichaud. So they, they come up with that plan. Do, do you really want to do some art? I'm like, yes. If I had a space, you don't know how much I can do. I remember the first time they invite me, Sam is like, I have a backyard. He tells his husband, and thank God they allowed me to work in his backyard. The next thing I was picking trash, everything all over the street I'm putting in the backyard. And I made a very small ceramics because of the space. They were all blown out. I'm like, God, stop. Stop. <laughs> so literally, I always, I've been growing from space to space. And then that first studio, I got it through uh, Brooklyn, where I had to give them a piece of art and then work in the space for the whole year. Wow. So that's what I was doing. And this is when I started small scale was like maybe five feet ceiling in the basement <laughs> and uh, very tiny, but you know, it was space. Yeah. So I would do like Uber deliveries in the morning, then evening time, I would spare my time, go do some art, then come back to the streets, do some Uber dinner time. And uh, it now blows out Miami Nada. I sell out everything. This was like, boom. Yes. My studio right now, I uh, remember that when they showed it to me, I'm like, I cannot afford this. Now I have to pay my own studio. So I'm like, you will make it. I'm like, okay, let's try. But it feels like I'm going to spend all my entire rent. Actually, the, the landlord was so good. She told me, okay, I'm giving you this other space, which has no windows for 1100 But I'm like, where am I getting, it, getting the 1100 But that, <laughs> this is how now I started working in space. Uh, this is an amazing space. She recently risen the rent to 1500 because she put windows, which is good. And now I can, you know, work from outside. I can blow my mind and uh, go to a new studio space, ceramic space. It's a, a studio, it's called a sculpture space, where I can now literally make them feel the headache of why they have big kilns. You look at those, now I feel they're small. I feel like they're, they're tiny right now. I feel like I need to <laughs> what blow. What the large ones? <laughs> but those, those still feel small. I feel like... Just, just to give the audience an idea, it's I'm about 5'8", and it's like some of them are double my height. The biggest ceramic stuff I've made is, uh, I think it's like 14 feet. Oh, my God. But uh, it's not big enough yet. I, I feel that babies, grown-up babies, but <laughs> that is how I've come from small space to now you know it's the space that I work in is the one that also inspires me and when Stephen told me I had a show with him unlike here in New York where our gallery is really small yeah so when I'm creating work I'm creating for the space so I was literally working looking at the space so you go with the space first and then you kind of build the yes community within that because uh, my dream, actually, when I first moved to the museum, because I'd never been to a museum, I saw these huge works that was in D.C. And I was blown out. I'm like, how do they really create these artworks? And 
I actually saw Henry Moore's works when I was in London a long time ago in 2013. And, yeah. and I was inspired by the scale. So my dream and vision, now I want to do something that goes to an, an out space where 100 people are looking at it and they feel like insects, you know? I mean, just from getting the sort of sensations that I did in front of your work, that's my height. I can't even imagine double that and 10 times that. It's going to be so effective because I think what's so amazing about your work as well is like the show as well. It's just this breadth of material as well. It's so unexpected every single time. You're looking at a beautifully put together wooden sculpture and then there's a ceramics and then there's found objects, there's painting too. I mean, they feel so felt. And what I love, even though they're so big as well, well, I know they're small for you, but um, you can even sort of sense your presence. I mean, what is it about working with such a variety of materials that you are attracted to? Thank you. It's, let's start off with ceramics, uh, breaking rules. Yes. Ceramics I love and what I've loved and uh, the most challenging time, which has also become inspirational to the people that I work with in the same space, more especially ceramics. Well, I'm a trained scalp ceramist. Where I started in my career, glaze was for professors. So students, it was very hard. And most of the technique we're taught was pots. Everything has to look like a pot. It, it was quite challenging, but I said, I can't do this. I can build my sculptures in clay because I'm here and no professor is going to tell me, don't do this. You don't have to do this. And I started building them. First, I was in Greenwich House where it's uh, overpopulated and everybody has to fight for space. So I was limited to creating. And now here in this space, I don't have anybody to tell me stop. And I'm working along people who are not artists. Some are they're very careful with clay. They're, they're very passionate about their pots. I don't know if you've seen ceramics. Yeah. Well, well, very passionate when it gets to their pots. Yes, I love people like Simone Lee or Magdalene Odondo. I know Simone Lee. We've been in the same studio, actually. I've also seen Odondi's work, the, yeah. the pots, the yes. vessels. I think she has a show right now. And the way they kind of be romancing the pieces, when I come in in a sculpture style, it's only clear that says, calm down, relax, Leila, we're done. Because you can't build it to the fullest. You have to get to a certain level. If you go beyond that, it's going to break. It's going to collapse. So I always make sure, okay, when I come in, I'm going to work on 50 pounds of clay. And uh, you'll find somebody work on 50 pounds for a whole month. Two months that they're with one piece. I'm sorry to laugh at them, but that's them. And uh, I'm there to break the rules, you know. And uh, I had to change two times in my studio because my neighbor was so frightened about how I hold Claire. He, he, he said, literally, he's like, I'm freaking out. This, she's freaking me out. She's not fragile with Claire. And, and I literally understood it. <laughs> and when I get to glazing, this this is my most interesting bit. It feels like painting to me. I don't have any rules. I just throw it like painting. This is also I have to do it inside my space because it freaks out people who are trained ceramics. <laughs> there are so many rules. Yeah, they, they have a lot of rules and I'm no I'm done with rules. We've grown up with you you have to be this. You when, when I look at look at how society wants everything to be. You have to be this. You have to do this. You are a woman. I don't want to work on that. I don't want to push this into my art. This is when people ask me, do your work have any genders? I'm like, just 
give it a gender of your choice because i have many questions it looks like a man it looks like a woman it has earrings it has i'm like just give it's it irrelevant a peace, just give it a peaceful gender i don't want my work to to come to me and tell me dad we we're not satisfied I, i'm like please let the work be out there let's let it think I think that's its impact, the universality of it as well. It speaks to anyone of any age, any gender, any race, anything. There's this like kind of familiarity to it. It's strange. You feel like you know them. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I think it's the same technique with sculpture. Yeah. I don't have any rules. I don't have any sketches. And uh, if I have one sketch, I'll turn up with 10 physical works. Because every time I try to get to the sketch, it directs me differently. It wants to be something else. It's like children in the womb. You don't know who they're going to be, who they're going to resemble. So I think it's the same thing that happens when somebody's creating. This is what happens. And then with the paintings that are just growing from drawings, I recently started painting on 48 by 48. They're really big. <laughs> There'll be murals next. <laughs> yeah, when I look at Kahindi Wiley's work, that was the first piece that I saw when I was here. And I'm like, how do these people work? Have you ever seen the Mexican muralists? This was like the kind of 1910s or 1920s. People like Diego Rivera, and they literally worked on the side of buildings. I'm going to look at that. Yeah, I'm going to send it to you after this. <laughs> oh my God, thanks. But uh, <laughs> it is insane. So when you look at Stephen Freeman Gallery, when they asked me to produce work and I'm like, I'm going to do some paintings. I, I told them I'm going to do 36. This is what I had in mind. But as I kept on painting, when you look at the last paintings, the paint started becoming more thicker on the paper. And that is what gave me an idea of why don't I throw this paint now on canvas. So I'm now painting. And it's coming out well. They're beautiful, actually. Oh, I can imagine. I can't wait to see them. But what I love about your work, especially the sculptures and the ceramics, I mean, one work that particularly spoke to me in the show was Mother of King from the Kuchi royal family. What, what really spoke you about her? Just the fact that, like I said earlier, they feel sort of ancient in a way. But I love the fact that you use these kind of discarded materials and this idea of kind of assemblage and you take something that has sort of, you know, deemed trash and you charge it with such meaning and power. I mean, it kind of reminds me of someone like Betty Saar's assemblages. You know, she grew up next to the Watts Tower in L.A. and was, you know, making something shine from something that had been thrown away. I, can you talk a bit about the symbolism of using lots of different discarded materials in your work? Thank you again. To me, it is about who we are and where we come from as LGBTI community, it is a way of bringing the discharged voices or voices that are unheard to the community. When you look at trash, it's something that everybody throws out. It's something that doesn't hold any value anymore to a person who considers it trash or garbage at that particular time. So this is how, besides where my history of the fact that the LGBTI community is termed as trash, it's termed as a visiaga, which is a sugarcane husk. It is trash. It's still today. It's not heard. It's, the voices are still suppressed. The only way to kind of bring the value of us, the trash, is by showing how important we are, how, how vocal we can be, how professional we can be, how talented we are. And we're out there. We're not trash like everybody thinks. And as an artist, this is the, the way that I can bring out the voice of trash 
to create beauty. And when you look at the ornament and the assemblement, it's about the transgender women, or the drug women who come out in public, dress up every single day and put on jewelry to, to show who they want to be or who they are, you know? They take all this much time to dress up, to look beautiful. And when you look at the ornaments, this is how I bring out, it's about the ornaments, it's about the jewelry. Because they almost feel like, you know, like almost like sort of 17th century portraits with all this kind of rubies and gold and everything everywhere. And then you look close and they're just kind of old tires and old bike wheels. And, and what's so beautiful is they like absolutely glitter in the space and it's, it's magic. Thank you very much, Katie. The way you're talking, I feel like I want to jump to, to London, you know. I wish USISC knows that, that I need to go into this show personally. Let's send them the podcast. But I mean, like I said, they kind of have this humanity, but also power. I mean, do you think about the presence in the space? What presence do you want them to give off? The beauty, the elegancy, you know. It's beauty. We are beautiful. We are elegant. We are smart. We're out there and we look good because they look good. Yes. And by the time I present them to anybody, I have to feel it. Every piece in there I had to stay with for two weeks. Feel how beautiful it is. I have like a hundred shots because every time I'm making a piece of work, when it gets to the level of now dressing up, it's back and forth. I take photos. I come back in the house. So I know they're out there and they're ready and they're beautiful. But I love the sort of juxtaposition between their weighty monumentality and then the kind of fragile and vulnerableness. Some of it seems so fragile and delicate, which becomes human in a way. Thank you very much. I think this is who mostly the LGBTI community is. It's, it's the most marginalized, the most populated, you know, and the most isolated because everybody has their own myths about the community, even here. I was on Visual AIDS anniversary last weekend, and the talks still resurrect of what the LGBTI community was in the 70s, in the 80s, and it's still happening today. When you look at things that are going on, yeah. it's not stopped. And when you look at the trans women and trans men mostly, they're not the most vulnerable. Yeah, These are aspects that, as an artist, I have to look at. And how do you display them? You want to create something that somebody wants to touch, but also feels like they fear to touch it because of, of its vulnerability. Yeah, it's such a sort of beautiful visual form. But I, I want to come to your shows in a moment, but I'd love to just go back to your beginnings because so much of your work is informed by your autobiographical experience as well, which I find, you know, it just becomes even more powerful. You were born in 1985 in Kampala in Uganda. Tell me about your childhood. Was art something that was always present in your life? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> You're like a born artist. <laughs> Seriously, because what I remember, my mom was an accountant and she also had a big hardware store with my stepfather. So we grew up with both of them in the city. And we used to go visit my father, who was a businessman and a Muslim clergy. So this was two complete worlds. When you go to dad, it's something else. You have to read Quran, you have to read Islam. And when you come back home, it's Christian. I never saw any art when I was growing up. But I think at school, we used to do like craft for just exam. And it was just about exam. It wasn't something serious. And I started recognizing art. I think high, end of high school 
when I had to just add uh, art class to get marks because I literally never wanted to read that much. So the only <laughs> way to get... So we would jump on art because you didn't need any classes. It wasn't any <laughs> studying in there. And I remember as uh, I was doing printmaking and many students never wanted to do it. So they would pay us. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so it was just another way of making money in high school. Like you would just make prints for, you know, people who didn't want to do the arts, the art exam, you know. It wasn't any serious art. Yeah. I, I was actually admitted at the art school. Because I didn't want to miss university. And the only way I would get a scholarship or get into my career university, by putting art. Yeah. So it wasn't a big deal. But I'm like, we'll see what happens. But my father wanted me to push in to get to the law school. Oh. He typically wanted me to go into the, the law school. Same thing with my mother. They both wanted me to be a lawyer. It's prestige to have a daughter now who's doing law. It's, <laughs> yes. it's, it sounds so big like you hear it. <laughs> and then when you're around his friends and they ask, what are you doing at university? You're like, I'm a lawyer. You know, everybody <laughs> will be like, yes. <laughs> he gets more points. <laughs> more kudos. <laughs> yeah. So it was either I have to be a lawyer, I have to be a doctor, I have to be... A teacher, I don't know. Why. Not an artist. <laughs> of course, even art, the art, art itself. Personally, I didn't know about it. Yeah, I never knew what it was about. It's until I started doing it. Yeah, my grandfather says I've never seen an artist anywhere in the family. And then something on my father's side. The first time he saw me do art, he's like, I've never seen anybody even draw a small girl on a paper so we don't know where you got this kind of talent but it so happens me and my twin sister who can just look at a table mat and she'll go back and weave it right away she just looks at somebody's hairstyle and she's like i can do that and she'll do it but the rest none of them even knows what art is i remember my father who literally was so pissed about me and my doing art he had yeah. to come at the university to see what is art. And he was so excited when he met professors. <laughs> My father wanted me to be a professor at a certain point. A doctor. Those are, you know, big names. You're like and the most he, impressive daughter ever. <laughs> yes. So he comes and I was introducing to him the dean, the professor, <gasps> the doctors. He's like, oh, I didn't <laughs> know you can be a professor in art. He didn't look at the art aspect. He still yeah. picked, now you have to go and be a doctor. Even after my undergraduate, he paid for my grad student just to be a professor. He didn't want to know about art, so uh, which I didn't be. And I'm so saddened that we don't talk. Of course, my sister told me he talks. He talks, but he'll be so happy if I was in good terms and I'm this successful. He'll be in London right now, even before him. He'll be booking a ticket to come there and brag. You would see him. (laughs) Brag so bad. (laughs) That is one sad thing that I feel like, even when I have some money that I would like to give him, I'm like, Dad, thanks for, you know, educating me. We can't talk. Trust me, he'll be the first person on the plane. And he'll be there on the door telling everybody how (laughs) I'm his daughter. (laughs) Yeah. 
So, I mean, then you, you, I mean, you studied under some amazing sculptors. Uh, I, I know that you had some very formative teaching at this time. I mean, what were you uh, experimenting with at this time? Were you kind of addressing LGBT narratives at all at this point? No, actually, by then it was just doing art and uh, figuring out how I would make money as an artist who had just graduated. And it didn't concern me a lot until the death of David Carter, who was a very famous activist by then, LGBT community. And I didn't know much about our community until, I think, first year in college. Uh, this is when now I'm seeing, because because I was this serious super stubborn lesbian at school, I was expelled so bad to an extreme that my father just decided to put me in a single sex school. And actually, my parents thought it's a series that will pass. Wow. They thought maybe it's just bad habits at school. Different schools have their own habits. Because whenever I got back home, I felt isolated. Yeah. Like, why do I really like girls? And all my sisters have boyfriends. And it kind of bothered me, but I never talked about it. We never talked about it. But I never took it that serious. Until now, first year, I'm seeing girls dress up like men. Because it's now college. It brings up everybody from all over the country and from all over other schools. So this is what was an eye-opener. And I remember one, one girl came and told me about the community. I'm like, okay. She invited me to a party, actually. And when I got there, I'm like, okay, so I can be who I want to be. Yeah. This is now I know about the community. Yeah. I start going to underground bars, you know, clubs. And the next thing is the death of David Carter. Of course, I knew him. I knew his work. And I see everybody coming out putting on masks. So this is how now my activism gets into my art. And that was at the end of undergrad and getting to grad school. I now have a community that I totally identify with. And I think this is the time as a scholar to look at what I can help in talk about what was going on at that time. And how did the teachers respond to that? It wasn't a positive response and it wasn't a negative response, but they just did not respond. They just literally said no. Like, we can't deal with this kind of topic in a university wow. because you're trying to promote homosexuality. And I remember having some of them call me how much money I was paid to promote homosexuality and how am I going to promote it through my art that is talking about the issues that are in the community. To me, it was about we're there, we exist, and we have problems. Yeah. But it's not something that you can pull out and bring into society that had just passed the anti-homosexuality bill. And then how did you end up getting to New York after this? I remember 2013, I had an art residence, which was down in London. And then I went back home. It wasn't that rough. But 2013, December is when the anti-homosexuality bill was tabled back to the parliament. It was brought in 2009 and then nullified after the death of David Carter around 2011, then tabled back in 2013 when I just got back home. And it was a tough time. I remember I started physically getting into street protests of LGBTI community. I was like putting tablets 
remember my father had got one of the copies. I was on TV. He was watching TV, asking, isn't that Layla? Yes, is she now fighting for LGBTI issues on TV? So I totally understand his frustration as a father, as a parent, but I think he would have done something more for the fact that he's my father. He has protected me for a long time. So the relationship with my father had died and I literally had nothing to lose. I wasn't talking to any of my family members by then. I was in a hiding. So when an opportunity came where then the only way that I was looking to get out of the country was either through going to Nairobi camp to get an asylum there, which I, I think I wouldn't handle. And, uh, the other way was, since I'd left the country before, was getting a residence. So as I was looking at a lot of art residences and applying, and this is how I applied to Fire Island and got it. Ended up here and just decided to stay because I had nothing to lose. Yeah. And I mean, so Fire Island is this incredible residency in New York. Yes. And it's the first US residency exclusively for LGBTQI plus artists and poets. And am I right in thinking that your air ticket was actually funded by Kahindi Wiley? Yes, he's among the people who funded it. It's, it's a group of artists, actually, African-American artists. And Kahinde Wiley is among them. And they're doing an amazing job where they kind of uh, raise money and... Uh, I didn't know even Michelin Thomas. Oh, she's in it. She's among them. Wow. It's a big group. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you arrived in the US, I mean, what was this place like? I mean, you were free to obviously discuss and, and address these vital subjects. I mean, how did your art then change at this time? Yeah, it totally changed. These are pieces that I wouldn't produce when I was back home. I, I wouldn't just, just produce an artwork. Even when you look at the titles, the fact that they're in a culture term, when you look at my titles in the book, it's a big political section also. It's not political in the government, but it's political in the culture. When you look at the fact that I look at the kingdom and the relationship of the king. Yes, yeah, so I should add your, your first solo exhibition was in 2018 at Gordon Robbins Show in New York. The show actually paid homage to the little-known openly bisexual king Mwanga II, who yeah. in the late 19th century fought against the colonial rule of Uganda by Western missionaries. I mean, yeah. I'm so fascinated by this idea of clans and kind of royalty because, I mean, can you talk about this idea of the king and his history of bisexuality and the fact that actually it was colonialism? I mean, tell me about your research with this history. The reason why I use uh, uh, the history in the biggest kingdom in the country, which is Buganda, is because everybody's familiar with it. When you talk about these names, everybody's familiar with these names. And it's not an escape. It's just like talking about the Queen of England. Everybody knows about the Queen of England. It's like talking about Trump, talking about Obama. You just want to throw out your point out there, just point to them. So the only way to kind of make my people understand our history, I literally, of course, when you come up with uh, such examples of the king, people, elders, also give examples. Oh, we had a so-and-so called so-and-so. He was, I think, homosexual. You're like, okay, okay. So they kind of relate it when you bring it up in the name of the king. And uh, these are things that have been hidden from uh, the public. 
why were the Ugandan martyrs killed? Of course, they were getting against the kingdom and what they had found in the kingdom and denying the lovers of the king. This is the history that I've ever had and have read that yeah. is not written anywhere. Wow. So I decided to pull it out in my first show and uh, it was a very good one <laughs> because I like it when people now wake up and start discussing about issues that they didn't want to discuss about because these issues exist. Nobody's going to rub away the history. When you look at the history of King Mwanga, besides his sexuality as a king, he had a lot of things that he did for the country. But besides his sexuality, and uh, now it comes into the, the introduction of Christianity, where Christians came with the Bible, and this was a very big played role. I don't know who wrote the Bible and how literally they wrote every single thing that we now question. You wake up on, on internet, on social media, and people are asking, did really God love his child? How would one kill his own child and not kill Satan? So these are questions that are coming up right now. And when you look at how the Bible was written, and it, they came with this Bible preaching against homosexuality and many other things and many other deeds to kind of get what they wanted. And, of course, they found the king, who was a bisexual, who had his lovers who are working for him, who are respecting him. And what I heard and what I read is they were telling them, no, what you're doing is wrong. And this was done in many, many generations. I know everywhere, even different kingdoms. I don't want to push it to the kingdom of England because I want to visit. No, 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 no. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, they all, have, they all have sexuality, homosexuality yeah. in there. But they don't want to talk about it for only the free kingdoms and free societies that feel like it's okay, it's normal, it's people that are living with us. So they had uh, they had their own Bible teachings and the king was so mad at them. And that is why he had to get rid of them. And so when you kind of create these clans, do you find it's about kind of creating alternative narratives? It's basically about bringing belongingness where we belong. Because having a clan name it's given to you or assigned to you at birth. So if parents come up and turn against us and we have these birth clan names, how are they going to associate these names from us? And the only way to make our own community is we all belong to different clans. Let's make our own Kuchu clans where we belong in their clans. Because we still resonate with them, we resonate with whatever belief they come with. I guess, what do you want people to learn from your work and what's the future of your work? It is positive work and the future of my work, seeing it growing bigger than that, extremely bigger and extremely more positive. People to learn something out of it. And even people who have it, you know, respect it and love it just like I love it. Because it's one of the hardest parts, leaving it gold somewhere. But that's what I have to do. What, do I, what else do I have to do? Yeah, well, Leila, thank you so much for this fantastic episode. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be? And what would you say to them? Oh, my God. Maybe Simone Lee. 
I've not met her even when I was in the same studio with her. I, I've met Zenali. I used to love Zenali Moholi's work, but I've met Zenali and heard of, I've had a real talk. Yeah. I think it should be Simone Lee. Would there be anything that you would want to say to her? That I would like to learn, actually, from her. Her large-scale work, when you look at her work on, this, I think, 28th Street on the bridge. Yes. Very huge. I don't know if you've seen that piece. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. And uh, I just go there just to look at that piece. And I, I just want to know the process and how long it takes, because that's where I want to head. If I get the space and the labor to do that, I'd love to do something like that. Yes. Amazing. Leila Barbieri, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome, Katie. It was nice talking to you and seeing you. And thanks for the commentary about my work. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to the 69th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Leila Barbierier. It was so fascinating to hear about Leila's incredible life and work and urge you all to look up her fantastic exhibition at Stephen Friedman Gallery, which was on in London this past summer. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smilenich and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I will be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to The Great Women Artist's podcast with me, Katie Hessel.